All right, welcome back to episode six of the Launch Angle podcast here with Drew and James. For today, we want to do something kind of different. Um, We don't really plan out this podcast too much, just usually let the conversation take us somewhere. Um, And sometimes we'll just say like one or two topics that we want to get to, but we decided to maybe just go through his bookshelf and I picked out three different books that kind of stood out to me. Two of the three I've not read. So we're going to just tackle those in order and we're going to get James's thoughts on these books. Yeah, so you picked one of these books and it's Shop Class as Soulcraft, An Inquiry into the Value of Work by Matthew B. Crawford. It's actually one of the best books I've ever read. Um, can't say that about every single book on the bookshelf, but this is one that I should definitely read again. I read it Less than a year ago, so I'll probably read it again within you know two years or so. But the book is essentially about inquiry into the value of work. What does that mean? It it takes a look at. So let me give you Matt, Matthew Crawford's background. Is he? I believe went to college. I, I think he was a physics major and then got a PhD in political science and went on to work a few different jobs, a couple desk jobs. Ended up at a think tank in Washington, which, if you don't know, is just a, a think tank. It's an organization. It's usually, you know, associated with some sort of industry or political group, and and it's just they do a lot of research on different things. And he ended up quitting because he just didn't really feel connected to his work, and he didn't see how his inputs affected any outputs. So. Kind of the premise of the book is like modern work has become this thing that is so disconnected from the work itself and it's become so abstract and it causes a lot of really mental anguish for people because if you were just doing this, you know, abstract work, you're kind of a cog in the machine and, and, you know, clocking and clocking out every day, uh, doing quote unquote knowledge work, which like so many of us do now, you don't it's hard to see the bigger picture of where what you're working on goes towards, especially as you work in bigger companies. And what he ended up doing was he always loved motorcycles and cars and, and um, uh, you know, anything involving mechanics. Uh, he ended up quitting and then opening up his own motorcycle shop where he worked on motorcycles. And that's another big part of the book is about the value of manual work and craftsmanship and what we've lost by, you know, kind of exclusively steering people who want higher education towards knowledge work type education. We've kind of implicitly made people feel like trade school is a step down from a four-year college education, things like this. When in reality, trade school is great for a lot of people and it's very rewarding for a lot of people and you know, we, we might end up forcing people into abstract knowledge work type jobs when they would be much better suited to do trade work. It's just what they would enjoy more. And he, he was somebody who took, you know, knowledge work to the, the, you know, the nth degree, getting a PhD and working in a think tank, and was somebody who found, like, trade work was much better for him. And it just goes, the book goes on to talk about the values of that kind of work, how, you know, if, if you're working on a motorcycle, there, you you're, you understand the value of your inputs. 
Because you try to start a motorcycle after you just repaired it, it doesn't start or it runs beautifully. It's like you, it's very tangible. You know how well you did the work, and you can you know iterate it on that quickly and, and get better. And it's very rewarding. So that's and it just goes on to talk about like kind of like what the value of that work is, and we've lost the idea of like the value of that work. We don't really emphasize it enough. So that's kind of the gist of the book. It's it's very good. Yeah. So are there any um... Like, does he talk about just doing more manual work, or does he also talk about how to get a little bit more of that satisfaction out of uh, work that could be done in the knowledge economy? No, he doesn't really talk much about how to get more out of knowledge work. Okay. And it's not even so much a book. It's not, it's not a book that even... I wouldn't even say it argues for, you know, hey, if you suffer from not feeling fulfilled at your desk job, go pick up woodworking. I don't even really know if it argues for that. It's more to say, it's, it's very philosophical, and it's more to say you should, you know, if you're feeling this way, you should take a real hard look at what kind of work brings you value and, and also study the value of physical, manual work. There's something, I think you already said something like deeply human about it. So it was like a, deep psychological need for us that it fulfills when we have that type of hands-on work where we can see ourselves get better at something and do something of quality, which is becoming increasingly more difficult to see that in a normal modern day job. Yeah, for a lot of these projects, it can kind of just be like, all right, what is this moving the needle on? Yeah. You know, I can definitely understand that. Like, when you're doing any type of woodworking project, you see things happen from beginning to end. So you can actually know where you're at along that um, that process of the project. And, you know, I think that the, the motivation builds as you get closer to the end. And then you're able to look at that final product and, yeah, appreciate it. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, it talks about how... We first got, like, knowledge work kind of started, or this version of atomized work started in with the Industrial Revolution when you got, you know, line workers on a, uh, on a conveyor belt. And I think he talks about how, I don't know who it was, maybe it was Henry Ford, I have no idea, but when one of these factories first instituted, um, in these factories that built machines, you used to have people who end-to-end -end would build the machine. It was very like craft-based job. You took pride in the work that you did. You built this thing from, you know, start to finish. And then it became, you were just responsible for putting like one piece of it together. You're standing on the conveyor belt line and it comes and you screw this thing. And it just becomes very rote and monotonous. And when that was instituted, there was a mass, like a lot of people quit. Hmm. But the reason they were able to fill the jobs, I can't exactly Increased wages. It might have been an increased wage. It, it, I think it kind of ushered in this idea of like uh, sell, really selling your time, yeah, and becoming more of like a consumer in your free time. Mm. Um, and that I think trade off was enough for like a lot of people to say like, okay, I can have nicer things and a little bit more free time for doing but work that's less, know, less less demanding, but also yeah. less enjoyable. Yeah, right. It's less fulfilling, so it's not like, um, yeah work is not play. 
Yeah, um, I'm trying to find some of like, I have so many highlights in this book. Um, another thing he talked about is, yeah, so like the, the, the fulfillment you get from having craft knowledge or like deep knowledge and actually how to do something and, and becoming a master of that. And we totally lose that in a lot of knowledge work today because you bounce around from project to project and you go from industry to industry. I think, well, I think one of the, the kind of roles that he really, he really rails on here is like the consultant, the modern day like business consultant because they, you know, consulting, it's, it's like you're going into different businesses, you're in different sectors and you're advising them on, you know, whatever it may be and then you're kind of leaving. You don't actually ever really get to see, I think, the uh, result, yeah, of, of these things that you, these inputs that you had. Um, and so, and so you, you kind of end up with this like shallow knowledge of, of how things actually work and then the way processes are carried out. Um, yeah, it's probably a lot of copy-paste, right? I think that's what a lot of modern-day work is, a lot of copy-paste. It's not deep knowledge of the, the whole process. And that's like a, a Feynman thing that's talked about in Naval's book, is that a lot of people can't explain things from the foundational principles all the way up to the complex. They make leaps between different levels of complexity using uh, jargon that's common in whatever space, whether it's business, science, nutrition, exercise. Jargon kind of fills that void of, um, of knowledge. Helps yeah. you kind of jump between levels. Yeah. Um, another, I'll read this, this part that I highlighted, which I think is very true is uh, it's about creativity and the creativity that you can get from actually going deep on a type of work. And it's the truth, of course, is that creativity is a byproduct of mastery of the sort that is cultivated through long practice. It seems to be built up through submission. Think of musician practicing scales or Einstein learning tensor algebra. Identifying creativity with freedom harmonizes quite well with the culture of new capitalism in which the imperative of flexibility precludes dwelling on any class task long enough to develop real competence. Such competence is the condition not only for genuine creativity, but for economic independence, such as the tradesman endures. So that's just one, one point he makes, but it's like what I was saying before is, you know, in a lot of jobs today, you don't really get the opportunity to, to go deep on something right. and to develop real domain expertise. Because it is that, that domain, I think, who's talking about this? So many people, really. Um, but it's like the reason people who people make innovations when they're at the absolute like bleeding edge of whatever field they're in, because that's when they can start to see. Um, it's like uh, what is that saying? Is to like make kind of like great art in something like you have to have rules and boundaries. Like you, people who do really innovative stuff know the rules and the norms really better than anybody else. Like mm. they've probably been the ones who've been doing the most like routine consistent work day to day and then when they finally break out because they know how to like they know exactly where the walls are and how to break those right. rules it's like you need to know the rules to know how to break them mm -hmm. that's what people say all the time yeah that was yeah. just a much shorter way of saying what i was trying to say no no yeah it makes a lot of sense though um all right yeah sounds like a pretty interesting book um maybe give it a read yeah so the next one is 10 percent happier by dan harris I have not read this book. I ended up actually downloading his 10% app 
Happier app. I have not used it yet, um, but it's 10% happier how I tame the voice in my head, reduce stress without losing my edge, and found self-help that actually works. A true story. I'm surprised you never read 10% happier. Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't gotten to it yet. Um, I did not know that Sam Harris and Dan Harris are not related until They're recently. Not. But, yeah, so Dan Harris, the only thing that I really know about him is he told this story about how he was a reporter, I think, in Afghanistan or mm-hmm. the Middle East and um, kind of got addicted to being in that dangerous environment mm-hmm. and then came back to New York and was more of like a reporter in the city. I think like he, a, took over, he took over Good Morning America. Okay, Good Morning America. So a pretty, not a heavy news show. Yeah, a little bit lighter, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Um, and was kind of missing that, I guess, dangerous or risk-taking edge and got into some drug use. And as a part of that, had a panic attack on live TV, right? Yeah. And that kind of started all of this search for kind of meaning because he knew that it was unsustainable to just use drugs or be in a dangerous environment. For that yeah, and thrill. I think he realized too that he had PTSD from reporting over there mm-hmm. that he had Virginia with. So it's probably part drugs, part dealing with that. But yeah, you can actually watch the clip on on YouTube of him yeah. having a panic attack on TV, not to little the guy or make fun of him, but just saying you can actually see if you want. And it's actually not that um, it's not that apparent that he's really going through yeah, anything. He just I have kind of seen stutters it. a little bit. But you learn in the book that inside he was just roiling with anxiety. He was really having a freak out. Um, and yeah, so that happens and I think he he tries to figure out how to how to deal with that and it leads him to meditation and he's averse to meditation at first because he thinks it's going to make him lose his edge. Yeah. And real quick, so I'm wondering too, like a lot of people suffer from panic attacks. Like watching that video, it's not even really apparent what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if I was watching that live, I would kind of just be like, oh, that was interesting. Yeah, and then kind of move on, right? Yeah. But this is like a very significant event yeah. for him, yeah. right? It probably among other things, led him down this, this journey. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it always is weird when you have those kind of social misfires, how you can dwell on them so hard, but yeah. It's not yeah. Weird. Yeah. No, you'd think it was like a technical difficulty or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, so he goes down the path of meditation and then he gets some like Eckhart Tolle books, things like that. I've never read Eckhart Tolle, but, uh, but he's averse to meditation because he thinks it's going to make him lose his edge. He talks about, he thinks, you know, he's, had you have to have I guess a certain edge to make it as far as he's made it in in the world of the news you know making it from I think he was started as a reporter in like Maine hmm. and to you know to make it to Good Morning America I mean, that's a big deal and there's a lot of people who want that spot um, but I think yeah what he ends up finding is that like meditation if anything just makes him sharper hmm. because. The I think the, I think he explains like the edge that he had to get him places was really a much more of a blunt object than he thought. So it's like you using that competitiveness and that fear and that anxiety to like drive you towards yeah. success. It's really like unsustainable in the long run. I mean, I it's 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 funny because it's uh I answered this I answered a question on Quora again recently, and the question was why do people form counterproductive habits? And I was thinking about it and Counterproductive is really just relative when you're thinking about habits because productivity cuts both ways with habits. So I was saying, for example, smoking is a counterintuitive habit for counterproductive habit for your health, 
but the re- a lot of people will smoke because it reduces anxiety in the short term. So it's actually a productive habit for short term anxiety reduction if you think about it. If you're just Definitely. purely trying to reduce anxiety, it doesn't mean you should start smoking to reduce anxiety. It's just a thing. Same thing with workaholism. Great way to get ahead financially and professionally, but it's pretty counterproductive to building a rewarding social life or family life, things like that. So it got me thinking like a counterproductive habit is productive on along some vector and counterproductive along another. And I think it if you, you look at the habit itself, it's like how sophisticated and complex and like maybe difficult to master the habit is makes it more productive along the vector that you want it to be productive along and limits a lot of those, if not completely diminishes those negative externalities. Can you make that like a, an applied Yeah, so for situation. Dan Harris, I yeah. think what drove him to the point of being able to get the one of the lead anchor spots in Good Morning America is fear of failure, needing to be at the top, the anxiety and fear that that produced drove him, you know, to work a lot, cut people off, get to where he wanted to be. But of course it it produced this lagging effect of just like, you know, tons of anxiety, atrophy, like he wasn't able to deal with a lot of other things in his life, you know, a lot of other parts of his life suffered. And then he adopts meditation to quell that anxiety and finds it actually makes him better at his job. Right. So it's more you can have a skill that's like brute force of saying like, yeah. you know, and this is necessary sometimes to be like, you know, fuck you, I'm going to be as... as super competitive and just a absolute beast and charge forward and you know nobody's gonna get in my way and I'll just grind myself out and that'll get you like very far but with a lot of shit left in its wake versus you can adopt something that's much more difficult and uh, in, in some ways and difficult to master like meditation that's much more light and kind of like nuanced skill that will take longer but it'll leave less if not it'll only leave more positives on the other end of it do you know what i mean like yeah so yeah. you're just wielding a more sophisticated tool to get where you want to go yeah i think that you know a lot of people have these tools that they use to fill in gaps in their life right so whether those are the best ones possible um for short and long-term results and side effects is you know questionable like some i mean kind of hints on like addiction, right? I mean, people are trying to solve a problem and the way that they're solving it is probably very effective in the short term, but has, you know, short and long term Mm -hmm. consequences. It's not that they're, you know, not intelligent for picking that option. It's just that the only one that was maybe available or maybe came to mind, who knows? Um, But yeah, they're all tools and they're used to to fill a gap in some way. Um, And they're not all made equal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the thing that's interesting too is actually in the title it says how I tame the voice in my head, reduce stress without losing my edge. So if you just read that without kind of examining it, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's just part of the title, but without losing my edge, I feel like he's getting a hint into his own personality more than, it's not just like a general statement that I feel like a lot of people that aren't type A would yeah. really um, relate to. Like it directly is saying that he used his stress to have an edge, mm-hmm. which you wouldn't really think about unless you could kind of relate to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, 
but yeah, it's like a, like you said, just a blunt instrument to get forward. And at the end of the day, it's the anxiety is just making him achieve things to reduce the level of uncertainty and level of anxiety. But likely as he got higher and higher in his career and progressed, you know, being a news anchor in Maine, you know, a certain level of stress, but on Good Morning America, that's probably a whole nother level of stress, more viewers, you know, more money tied to it, ratings, all that. So it's almost like more money, more problems in that sense. So yeah, at the end of the day, you gotta kind of resolve whatever's making you have that anxiety, kind of push you to just do more. Yeah. So the book is definitely good for like meditation skeptics too. It's not something that you think would benefit you because it's, I mean, that's where Dan Harris comes from. He's like, he totally wrote it off. Yeah, for, this is woo-woo. For most of the book. I think the title is also 10% happier. He talks about what that actually means. It's like, a lot of people too have this conception of meditation. Oh, it's like, this is going to make me happier. This will, you know, lift this part of depression or this anxiety. He's like, no, it really just, it adds just 10% to your life. Yeah. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a, it's a ton. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, like that mindset of I'm going to meditate to make me happy, that is also kind of part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Like meditation helps you to just not have desires because desires are based upon outcomes that are not guaranteed. And part of meditation is just letting go of certain outcomes. Right. Right. So just getting rid of desires can alone make you a little bit happier. So. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think it's about getting rid of desires. It's just about recognizing like when you are desiring something. I think that's like a key, key uh, piece for people to get with meditation, which is it. It's not the eliminate meditation is not the elimination of anything. Like not the elimination of thought, nothing. It's just the recognition of all of it, which gives you the opportunity for your more just the rational part of yourself to make a informed rational judgment on the thoughts actually going through your head because so oftentimes like you're making judgments based off emotion or how your thoughts are making you feel and then you're making these skewed judgments whereas like meditation is just it's not people think it's about getting rid of thoughts or if they're meditating they're right. not doing it and they have thoughts like they're not doing it right you're never going to get to the point unless you just devote your whole life to it uh and even then um where you're not going to have where thoughts are going to completely go away and you're going to be this present being like every moment you know, people claim to have done it, monks and things like that. I have no idea. Um, but the real value of it is to just create a small gap between stimulus and response. Mm-hmm. That's really right. all it is. Yeah, and I think it just helps you become more discerning, right? It's just which of these thoughts are going to, am I going to actually make actionable? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all like they've done the brain scans to show that there's more, um, I think it's, what is it, gray matter or white matter in the prefrontal cortex. Gray. Um, just from the, it's like a muscle, like if you work out the prefrontal cortex through meditation, then you're gonna be a little bit more discerning, better with long-term yeah. planning, just executive function in yeah. general. I think a great example is like road rage too. It's like, you know, people get so mad if somebody cuts them off, but I think what meditation lets you do is have a split second before you let your, like your emotions are always going to get triggered first. You're going to have like this kind of subconscious reaction, but then it just lets you recognize that that's happening and say like, okay, what do I want to do next? 
Because, like, you can get mad if somebody cuts you off and just be okay with being mad and not do anything about it. Or you can scream and start honking your horn. But it just lets you take a more higher-level view be able to say, like, what, what good is, is that going to do for me in five minutes? You're not going to be angry. You're not going to be angry in two minutes from now. Right. Like, Sam Harris makes a great point. Like, try to stay angry. Very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> try to actually stay angry for, like, more than a minute or, yeah. or two minutes. Like, if you were to sustain anger for ten minutes, it's a total, that's like a conscious effort. Like, you really have to try. Yeah, yeah. Everything goes, everything passes. Yeah, no, that's so true. Yeah, like you said, it's just um, longer time between stimulus and response. I really like that because... Yeah, if you can just make that a few more seconds, then you can have that other thought come in that just says, like, is this worth it? Yeah. 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 So, but anyway, those are those are three books from my shelf. Shop Class of Soulcraft, How to Change Your Mind, and 10% Happier. Definitely pick them up if you're interested in any of them. Um, Drew, do you have any books that you would like to discuss? With your, you have your Kindle library open. Yeah. Um, so this is a shared Kindle library, so it's not all... All mine here. Let's look through here. So I think one of the things, one of the books that I would talk about briefly is just ultra learning. Um, I've obviously talked about learning Spanish on a bunch of different podcasts already. Um, and I would say that was kind of my one ultra learning stint. But essentially what ultra learning argues for is having periods of very dedicated time to learning um, various things. It could be a language, it could be an instrument. Uh, one of the ultra learning stints that the author did was just learning to draw better. So essentially he just drew, he would just copy things off the internet like over and over and over again. Um, and just like, I think get it, like feedback from it. And yeah, I mean, you could apply the system to just about any type of learning. Um, it's really just about like cutting out distractions and fully focusing on learning so that you can accelerate um, in that space. And I don't really have much else on it. Yeah, well, I think I tried. I tried reading that book partially. I don't know if I finished it, but I did read it. And I feel like my takeaway from it was th- there's just no shortcut to learning. You just yeah. have to put in the work and really deliberately practice in order to learn anything. Is that accurate? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I think it's also just like the most high impact tasks are to be like sought out in your learning. Like, I mean, we talked about how like, you know, TED Talks and Duolingo, things like that are, you know, probably not the best for creating a wide foundation, really progressing through um, learning. So seeking out the hard thing. um, And that's probably where most of the growth is going to happen. Yeah, yeah, really pushing the edges of what is possible. Doesn't he also learn like computers? Doesn't he give give himself like a computer science degree? Yeah, yeah. So that was through MIT's open courseware. Yeah, I think it was like a year or two um, that it took him. He basically just went through all of the MIT uh, open courseware uh, courses and. He didn't actually earn a degree um, as a part of it, but he went through every single class and taught himself a whole MIT computer science degree, which is pretty ridiculous. But kind of just goes to show if you have like consistent, very focused effort, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't accelerate a college degree for yourself, especially when you have the motivation. 
Yeah, yeah. This almost this almost thought that we should all follow a whatever twelve week, ten week quarter schedule or sixteen week semester schedule when we're very different learners and have different levels of motivation is kind of that yeah. alone is kind of old fashioned. Yeah, like. it's kind of interesting. It makes me think about two things. One is I'm reading David Goggins' book right now, Can't Hurt Me. And like it's really good. I, I it's been out for a while. I just I never picked it up, and I finally decided I would just read it. Um, and it's it's really good. And, and really, the central point of the book is just like if you think you're done, you're not. You're you have so much left in the tank. And you know he proves that through. He, I didn't know this. He goes through Navy SEAL buds training three separate times. I had no idea. I yeah. thought it was just once. He goes through three times, and then I just finished the part where he does his his first ultra marathon, which I think he foolishly did. He almost killed himself doing it. But it didn't have any carbs. Yeah. He, he was eating like he was protein. Drinking protein shakes. Yeah, yeah. Protein shakes and... He went know. to kidney failure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah essentially. Yeah. Like, it was not wise the way he yeah. kind of took it. But the point of it is he just repeatedly throughout his life has proved to himself that he can do so much more than he thinks he can do. And I think the same thing goes for, for learning and a lot of these things. It's... You have so much more that you're you're capable of. You're just willing to to push yourself in that direction. Um, so that's an idea I've, I've been kind of thinking about as I read that book. And ultra learning kind of I think brings up similar thoughts. Yeah, I've always wondered because I read "Can't Hurt Me" once or twice. Um, I think I read it once, and there's also the Audible audiobook is actually really good. Mm. It's um him narrating it and then he or someone else narrates it and then the narrator and Goggins get together for like a conversation after every chapter oh. or in between the chapters so it's almost like a podcast audiobook That's cool. hybrid it's really good so it gives like further insights but what I've always wondered is I wonder what like an actual counseling psychologist would think about that book yeah like because, like we said before, it's only a tool that has you know positive or negative consequences, as well as it, it helps him, but also has positive or negative consequences. So, I don't know. It, like a lot of the stuff seems super extreme, and it might work for some people, but I just get very hesitant when there's these. I mean, he's, he's not giving necessarily a prescription, but he's advocating for you know, toughening yourself through very, very extreme types of training. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's just his story, and maybe that colors it too, because what he did is so extreme. I'm sure there's things you can take from it and apply it to situations in your life that are much less dangerous. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's all relative. It's all about what you're doing. I mean, I told you about... There's this kid I watch on YouTube who's like this college kid and he just, I think he, he doesn't do it anymore, but he used to just scream himself studying for 12 hours. And the reason he was able to do it, he said, he read David Goggins' book and he just kind of questioned like the effort he was putting into his studies and how much more he could possibly do. And it led to him realizing he can study for 12 hours a day and become the best student, you know, in his class. And he, and he does. So, and again, I'm sure that has negatives to it. Um, but I guess that's all relative. I, I, I guess I'm just trying to take the high-level message from it of when you think you're done, there's more you can put into it. But you're right. Yeah. There's definitely something that's un- unhealthy about it. 
And I was, I was like squirming when he was talking about running a ultra marathon on no training and like losing all his toenails and breaking all the bones in his feet and <laughs> he's like pissing sludge he talked yeah. about because his yeah. kidneys are, it's just, it's horrific <laughs> right do. yeah just not planned out at all yeah I mean it is insane just because I've been in that position where you know I think he was like what 250 pounds still when he was doing this like he wasn't no he was was he like a well he lost a bunch of weight he lost 100 pounds in like three months to join the SEALs okay but he was still a pretty big dude when he did that. He was, he was ripped. Okay. He was like 210. Gotcha. And all the people he was running with, he remarked, it was like these skinny, like very small people because they're just runners there. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're just ad- adapted to Yeah, they're better adapted. They, they trained for it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, does he say how long he had run before doing that? Like no, he, said he, he run? said he hadn't run more than a few miles in months. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, because I've been... I've been on runs where it's, you know, I'm trying to do a five mile run and I hit mile three and I'm just like, I just can't do this anymore. You know, and to imagine like, yeah, you have 97 more miles is just absolutely absurd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I couldn't even imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he talks about how he, I think he gets to mile 70 and he's basically dying and then he gets up and keeps going and you know, have the, the feeling of that and how he like taps into, he almost transcends himself. And yeah, that's, that's, I'm sure there's something to be said for that. I'm sure that's yeah. really an amazing feeling. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But how available I, it is to everybody, I don't... That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Like, he tapped into it, but does everyone have that to tap into? I think everybody has it. It's just it's how advisable varying, is it for everybody? I would say it's probably to varying degrees. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes certain life experiences can trigger innate qualities that you didn't know that you had. But to say that everyone has the innate quality of being able to just run a hundred miles off minimal training, like I don't know how generalizable it is. Yeah. Not to completely poo-poo the book, but you know there there are some good things to take from it. Um, I just think the level of extreme training and rigor that he puts himself through, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I also think I'm also looking said. at this through like a exercise yeah, right. <laughs> perspective, right. where like. There's plenty of clients that I work with where they can't run 30 minutes straight yeah. and they just genuinely can't. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think there's also something you've said, a good lesson in it of like people, human beings are much hardier and resilient than mm-hmm. we probably think. Definitely. Like capable of just more and, you know, we can survive a lot more than we think we can, especially in the cushy lives most of us have now. There's... I think, like, for me, what I'm taking away from it is, like, if I can apply, if I can add 1%, 1 to 5% more discomfort in my life, yeah, with the way that he, he added, like, 300% more discomfort to my life, I will be better off for having having done that. Yeah. It's a good book for just seeing, I guess, what's possible. I, I like this idea where he talks about, with the he'd already run a marathon before he did the ultramarathon, but he talks about the realization when he gets to, I think, mile 26 of, like, everything I go past here is uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a pretty powerful thing to think about, too, because you can prove a lot to yourself by going as far, like, far into that uncharted territory. Like, every step you take thereafter is, like, just proving to yourself there's m- more you could go, yeah. which is a very powerful thing to realize. And you can do that with other things, too. It's like, 
if you've only ever spent 30 minutes studying and you spend an hour yeah. and then it's like it can kind of become this fun game where it's like well, what if I spend an hour and a half what if I spend yeah. two hours like you really expand what you, you think is possible and that's central I think to living a really fulfilling life yeah and the thing that you hit on there especially was the aspect of it becomes this game and I think something that we've been talking about a little bit lately is almost treating some of these things as a game you know because that makes it um, for some reason it it gets rid of the downside risk in a lot of situations and you only see the upside Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah it's almost like unlocking another level right you're just that's all you're doing you unlock a new level it's like oh I've been at level three before okay let's try to get to level four Um, so it kind of quells some of that anxiety or like trepidation yeah, also, too, I think our perception of the downside risk is so much more overblown than exactly. it actually is. So I think it just puts it in the actual perspective that you should be taking. You yeah. kind of see it a little bit more for what it is. Yeah. Yeah, if you can get good at assessing risk, I think, uh, what's the book? It's by Annie Duke. Thinking in Bets. Mm-hmm. That's a great book. People should read. Um that just talks about the idea of like, you know, just assessing risk and luck in every situation. And yeah, I think for most things in life, you'll find that the upside is far greater than the downside is. Yeah. In, in, in things that are, you know, inherently is beneficial for you. I'm not talking about like, you know, there's things that are obviously risky. Yeah. No upside, but. I think people discount the upside in a lot of things too, especially I would say like socially, like, um, who it is. Laurie Santos, I think we talked about her on another podcast. She has the Science of Happiness podcast. She's a Yale researcher that studies happiness. And what she talks about is how important those little interactions are throughout the day. Um, just like talking with the barista or mm-hmm. maybe it's the driver on the, the bus, whatever it is. Uh, those little interactions throughout the day, we like drastically uh, overweight the negatives of that while severely limiting our perception of the upside right Mm -hmm. she says that some of those interactions are the most meaningful interactions that you'll have in a day but a lot of us are kind of just oblivious to that bump that it gives us throughout the day yeah definitely we've talked about this too off off of the podcast but another example too is just sending a cold email maybe to somebody you admire like have a conversation with or for a job opportunity something like that again the, the purely the downside is just they don't answer you. It's really that. That's it. Yeah. Unless if you just go, if you go about something like that respectfully, and you know, no, nothing bad is gonna come of it. Only good things can really come. So it's also like the expectation that you have. Like if you're just sending an email to someone you admire for the sake of doing it, like that could just be a worthwhile bump, no matter whether they get back to you or they don't. Because mm-hmm. um, I think oftentimes, like our expectation of what should happen, like, oh, they should send me back like a really, really nice email for doing this. Like, that kind of ruins the the magic in mm-hmm. just sending that cold email. Like, they even say that um, if, let's say there's somebody in the park who's down on their luck and you give them five bucks, you have a higher bump in happiness if you just do that and don't tell anyone versus if you go and broadcast that to mm-hmm. other people. Yeah. Which I think is super interesting it because is interesting. oftentimes you know, people nowadays will go and volunteer and then post 
post it on Instagram. It's like, yeah. 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 So it's expectation. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Um, yeah, that's something I really want to try to do more. And I told, I think I told you this morning. I, 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 I think Scott Galloway said like, yeah, try to talk to like five people in a day. I'm still trying to talk hard to, to do. one person yeah. in a day. It's hard to do. It is hard to do. But like we were saying, if you think about it, there's, I think, this massive kind of arbitrage opportunity in human relationship right now where, and maybe it's perceived, I think it's probably, most people would agree, nobody, we've lost, people of our age, we're in our mid-twenties, have really, don't really have that skill as much as maybe people of past generations to communicate with strangers and make those just cold introductions to people and, and be more... Those are, we're very isolated now. Yeah, you just walk. I, I just try not to walk down the street looking at my phone. Like it's something I try not to do. But you see, it's everywhere. Like yeah. everybody's doing, everybody's in their own world. And I think there's um, I think we still, everybody still wants that connection. Would enjoy a conversation with a stranger. I don't think it's weird. Um, I think we all probably yearn for it in some way. So that's what I'm saying. I think there's this. Everybody wants it, and I think you can actually reap massive benefit for yourself and provide benefits to other people. By just being the one who initiates it and, you know, starting a conversation with a stranger. You know, somebody can become, you know, your 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 best friend. They can become a business partner. They become, you know, girlfriend, partner. Girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. Um, anything. And, again, it's something where it's like, as long as you're not going up to people and, like, grabbing them or just being, like, a totally out there with how you're interacting with people, there's really no downside to doing it. You're, yeah. Everybody's going to be fine. You're not breaking any laws by just, like, saying hello to somebody. Yeah. And trying to initiate a conversation. Yeah, it's definitely something that could be gamified. I feel like it almost, if you just think of it as like a game, it, it does seem a little bit easier, mm-hmm. right? Um, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cool. Is there anything else? Well, I think just on that topic, like, you, you I think. Go ahead. I'm, I'm just going to get up for a second. Okay. Yeah, I think. Monologue. Yeah, I think um, on that, it almost is a little bit of a, a feedback loop with um, people not being able to have conversations uh, with others, right? Because you decide that you're somebody that doesn't have conversations with others in public, and then you know you gravitate more towards your phone for social interaction, and then you're thinking, oh, I haven't had an interaction with a new person in a certain amount of time, it's gonna be so awkward and then you don't do it, so the skill kind of degrades. Then over time, it's just this feedback loop that makes you a little bit more insular over time. So I think just trying to break out of that is really hard for a lot of people. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think starting with just like one person a day or even a week is probably a a good goal. Um, So yeah, you can definitely drive yourself into this insular kind of box. Yeah, and I think something I told you too that I think could be a good heuristic for people is like would you want you to come up and speak to you right if you were a stranger how would you feel if you came up to you it like and so if you think you know reasonably decently of yourself you're that you'd be like that's fine that'd be a pleasant experience yeah yeah exactly so yeah i would love that you just put yourself in somebody else's shoes with that 
and it becomes, it, it helps you realize that you know the list is extremely low. Yeah, when was the last time that someone came up to you? I don't know, public? that's the thing, I have no idea. I, think I had one guy who goes to my gym, we struck up a conversation a couple weeks ago, and I think he initiated the conversation. That was probably the last time that's ever happened to me. Yeah, I think it's been months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say it is pretty regional too. Like I think that in Philadelphia, in a city, obviously it's less likely to happen. Um, let's say around my hometown, about an hour away, it's far more likely to happen than even more likely in um, when I was living in Florida, you know, people are just very natural with it. And it's almost, I went right from Philadelphia down to Florida and it was almost like, what are they doing? <laughs> like it's, it's, and that's why I talk about like that feedback loop because I became really adapted to living in the Philly where it's like you have that urban scowl walking down the street and you don't really talk to people and it's just, you're going about your business. And then if you're dropped into like small town, Florida that's in the in the south it's just completely different so you, it really stands out you're like wow what what happened to me yeah I wonder why that is do you, do you have like any idea I think part of it's the pace of culture like yeah I think a lot of times when people are trying to talk to you in the city it's like it's almost this feeling of like what are they doing like we we have places to be right you know and I think we live our life like that where it's like I can't even pack that three minute conversation into my day, let's say, because, you know, it's just, it's just so slammed. Right. So, or, or our life is typically like that. So even if it's a Sunday and it's an open day, like you still have that residual feeling of like, there's places to be and I need to do stuff. Um, so like, I don't have time for it. I just need to go. Right. You know, and I, I mean, I feel like that sometimes on the weekends, like I'm rushing. It's like, where am I, what am I rushing to? You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's also something to be said, too, for, like, you can also make this easier for yourself. Um, like, I get that in the city, and I think it has to do with, probably the way a city is constructed, like, you don't see many people just standing around on the street. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, there is that, that feeling like you have to constantly be moving. But I think in different settings, you can have more luck with it. So, like, the gym has been a place where I'm it's fairly easy to just have conversations with people because when you're doing a shared activity, like you're all working out, so there's things to kind of remark on there. Um, but other things like um, a bookstore would be a good place, I guess. Or, yeah. I wonder how much of this is just people having headphones now as well. Uh, like if you just got rid of everyone's AirPods in Philadelphia, in the gym, on the street, in the coffee shop, how much would that change things? I bet it would have some, some change. It would have a pretty difference. big difference. Like, if I see somebody at the gym with AirPods in, you know, especially, like, those are pretty noise-canceling. Yeah. Like, I feel less inclined to go up to them and yeah. have a conversation. Yeah. I mean, I've had, I've been in the sauna, and I just wanted to, like, ask someone, like, oh, where do you get those shoes? Like, they seem like pretty solid lifting shoes. And I've been sitting, like, catty-corner to the person, like, in eyesight and just like been trying to talk to them with the airpods in they just can't hear you huh yeah no i guess that's true i'm like unless these people are really ignoring me yeah which that's probably not yeah um, but like in and i've had to kind of like wave They're like oh i didn't even i didn't hear you 
I think the phone probably has a bigger impact though. Yeah. AirPods definitely, and I'm guilty of it too. I go everywhere with headphones in. Yeah, for but some reason too, the phone I think turns up the urgency. For whatever reason, like when it's in your pocket, just like there's a baseline level of urgency that you feel. So it's like this person's talking to me, but I can be having like all of the world's experiences going on right now in my pocket. You know, that's that's on the other side. You know, it's also just an easy out too. Like if yeah. if you wanted to initiate a conversation with somebody, you felt like somebody was about to initiate a conversation with you, you didn't want to. You were kind of scared for either situation. It's just very easy to pick up the phone and, yeah. and nobody wants to really bother anybody who's on the phone. Yeah, I think that's like a natural thing that we gravitate towards nowadays, especially our generation. Like you're waiting in line, you just pull out the phone or just like awkward situations when you're at the bar. Like your friends go yeah, and yeah. grab a drink. It's like, all right, I'm going to grab my phone and just like act like I'm doing something. It's like right. that that protective mechanism is something that it's just worth ditching. Yeah, and I mean, you... It's like, what is that even like? You're not that much cooler by pulling out your phone versus just standing there looking around for your friends. Like, nobody cares. No, nobody cares. And you, uh, famously, go places without your phone pretty often. Yeah. How's that? Yeah, I would say recently I haven't done as well with it, but I did have that light phone at one point, mm -hmm. um, which only had phone messages calculator and directions um, and for a while it only had like phone messages and calculator but having that phone I definitely uh, I mean I got a lot of shit for it first of all because nobody wants to text green yeah. messages um, and also I couldn't receive pictures yeah. <laughs> so uh, that was a downside to it but um, yeah I mean I really liked it I felt like just definitely more present um, my focus was far better because, you know, if I had my phone right next to me when I'm working, like people can still reach me by phone or text. But, um, I mean, how many times do you pick up your phone to respond to a text and then you just open it, forget what you're doing. And then just like see that Instagram logo and just like mm -hmm. go on Instagram. So that wasn't even an option. And then the time that it was most noticeable was any time that I was, um, in a group, usually like doing an activity or eating dinner. Um, just like how often, even just like playing cards or being out to dinner, like people just like take out their phone and um, it's just so rude. Like it's unbelievably rude how many times somebody will be talking to us and we just like take out our phone. And I think that's something I became a little bit more conscious of, but I'm not saying I'm perfect with it by any means like I still do it but that's like a lasting thing that just bothers me not to be passive aggressive but a lot of times I just kind of like wait until we're done texting because whenever you're talking to someone and they're texting they give you a response and they're like oh I'm responding but you can't use that attention on both that text mm -hmm. and then the response that you're gonna give to me so like it's just not thought through it's like more of a base level response yeah like yeah you responded and checked the box but it wasn't meaningful yeah so like i'm just gonna wait and it's fine like i'm not upset yeah kind of goes back to the value of meditation too the phone is is so often a thing where we don't have zero space between stimulus and response so stimulus is uncomfortable situation or boredom responses look at the phone 
if you can just create a more of a gap between that and say like, okay, I'm bored, okay, I'm uncomfortable with the situation, but why do I feel that way? Is there a real reason to feel that way? And is it so bad that I can't really bear it? And 99.9, almost 100% of the time, the answer is just, no, of course you can. Like, you don't need to take the phone. There's nothing you're gonna do on the phone right now. Exactly, and I think another aspect of it too is that it's very low barrier. Like, yeah. it's just so easy. It's right there always. You just open it up. Don't even have to tap in your password anymore because the face mm-hmm. recognition just opens it up. And, you know, you have everything that you want right there. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I still could have used, like, Twitter and social media on my laptop. Mm-hmm. But just because I didn't have that on me when I had that light phone, um, you know, it became less of a habit because it was less accessible. Yeah. So. I mean, they talk about that in Atomic Habits, just accessibility, right? Yeah, there's a, I think, kinetic energy that the phone has, too, where I've noticed where if I don't, if I can just go the first hour of the morning without looking at my phone, I can, it it becomes easier to go two, three, four hours without looking at the phone. Yeah. As soon as you look at the phone, it becomes much more difficult to ignore the phone for the rest of the day. Just, that's, I think that's just to say that's possible if you can create a gap, you can, you can get momentum going in the way of not looking at it. Yeah, and I think also if you're just setting up your day by doing low barrier, reasonably high like psychological output things like Instagram, like it's really easy and it can make the dopamine spike a lot. Mm-hmm. Doing that first thing in the morning versus like something that's difficult, you know, you get a lot more momentum that way, mm-hmm. right? It took me a long time to go and whatever, fold my laundry in the morning. And then that's way more momentum than spending 10 minutes on Instagram. In both scenarios, you're doing something for 10 minutes that's you know, an activity, but far different levels of difficulty and then output. Yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah, I, I try to, I go to sleep listening to podcasts, so I always wake up with my phone. So it's harder for me to ignore it, but. I do try to sometimes go to bed with it in another room, which is helpful. Yeah. It's really helpful. Yeah, I don't really do the whole uh, wait an hour to use my phone in the morning, but I think that's something that could be worth trying. I, uh, I mean, a lot of times I just wake up and immediately just check something. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm which not is, perfect. Yeah, which is definitely not a, a good thing. I also, I shut my phone off at night, which is like still, I think people think it's the most bizarre thing. I completely shut it down. Yeah. Which I guess a lot of you know, green text people are like, yeah, what if there's an emergency? So, you know, fingers crossed there hasn't been an emergency yet, but I mean, I don't know. It's just always a habit I've had. People look at me like I'm crazy for it, but that's another way you can avoid the phone, just shut it off. It's, it's much harder. There is more friction to turning on the phone in the morning if you just shut it off. Yeah. It also makes it, some. I've never had this, thankfully, as an issue, but like, waking up in the middle of the night and just looking at your phone. Mm-hmm. I don't really, I don't do that because my phone is off, but I know that's a big problem for people. Yeah. That could be partially a solution. Yeah, I don't really wake up and wake up in the middle of the night that much anyways. That's not as big of a, a deal to me. But yeah, that's usually the, the reason for not going to something like a light phone. It's like, well, what if there's a emergency or what if somebody needs to send you something on Twitter or Instagram or any of those things? And you pretty quickly find out, like, especially on things like Snapchat, if you don't respond to somebody's Snapchat, like, twice, they just won't. (laughs) 
Like, oh, you just don't use Snapchat anymore. Like a lot of these things, it's like, oh wow, I got, because I got the iPhone back like two years ago and I've been using it since. It's like, oh wow, I got this back so that I can watch this stupid reel on Instagram. Like, yeah. I'm so much better off for this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think I've just chosen now to like, I'll accept the risk of there being an emergency that I'm maybe late to. Yeah, I mean like, Maybe it's your parents, but like they would probably call each other or whoever they need to call to resolve that emergency. I don't know what you're gonna do. Yeah, like a hundred miles away. Yeah, like there's this. People say this about the news too. It's like don't watch the news. Like if something's big enough of a deal, you'll find out. Yeah, the news exactly. will get to you. Yeah, exactly. If it's truly something pressing. Right. I mean, most news. Like I, I think every first of all, all news is breaking news now. Yeah. That's another thing that's crazy. But you know, I kind of like rail on my dad about this he loves watching like the nightly news and yeah. just like what how does any of this impact anything that you're doing yeah. on a day-to-day i get it like there's something being an informed citizen but the news has become largely this thing of just like you know it, it, it's really not the things that you need to just know fear machine yeah john mulaney actually i saw john mulaney yesterday and uh he just had this little bit about cnn and he's like i'm a i'm a liberal but i just it's so annoying that we had to act like we love CNN for the past few years. Like, we had to side with it. But he was just saying how CNN, like, everything's breaking news no matter what. Mm. He's just, like, saying that it's like a little kid that runs up, like, Hey, I found a, I, I found a frog in the garden. You're like, okay. You know, like, everything's breaking. It's just like yeah. that sweaty, out-of-breath kid just, yeah. like, coming up to you. That's CNN. You know? Yeah. Which is all news. It's all news now. It's yeah. just... Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also saw Elon Musk yesterday. Yeah, that was insane. Crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, he talked a lot about the Twitter stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, he talked about, obviously, Tesla, SpaceX. Um, so those are some of his bigger ventures. And he, he casually dropped, yeah, I'm, you know, right now spending 70 or 80 hours a week, or was spending 70 or 80 hours a week on work, but... Um, with the acquisition of Twitter, I'll probably be spending more like 120 a week working, which is just absurd. Yeah. He's like 16 hours a day, you know, seven days a week. Which I can't imagine what that looks like. Yeah. I don't even think that would be, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, I mean... That doesn't even add up to 120 anyways, but... I don't know. I mean, I read the PayPal book and by all accounts, he truly does do it. Yeah, I mean, so. yeah, I think we're both reading the almanac of Naval right now, and I know he famously says on a few podcasts, like, if I'm donating whole institutes or, like, wings of universities, like, I overshot. Yeah. You yeah. know, which <laughs> which I think about, like, those guys sometimes. I mean, at least Elon, I know he's a controversial figure, but at least by my estimation, it seems like he's trying to do what's best for humanity you know maybe in 10 years it's like he's this evil villain who knows but um yeah i mean i don't know if i would ever want to be that hard working on something yeah i think i don't know i I just think it's a personality type too yeah it's like i think so much of it is just innate to him yeah where it's like that guy would be working 16 hours a day even if he was living in total obscurity and nobody knew who he was yeah he already was before before he became you know what he is like 
yeah, there's this, I, there's probably, a, you know, a strand of people who, like, want to idolize it and, like, do it. There's another, I think, a part of it to realize, like, you're just not built like that. <laughs> like, yeah. most, most people aren't. That ain't you, Chief. Yeah, yeah, most people aren't. <laughs> yeah. And even, like, Nepal, like, yeah, he yeah. talks about, he famously talks about how he, how he, like, he thinks of himself as lazy. He doesn't want to work. Yeah. Like, he, he doesn't have, like, this, you know morning routine of the ultra productive like yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes he just wants to stay up doing shit till 4 a.m and like that's totally non-productive and sleep till you know 12 like he you know it, it, it's a spectrum of, yeah. of, of you know how you can be product productive and impactful but yeah i think people like to rail on elon musk for how hard he works and it's like i don't know i think to a guy like that it's just it's the same as, as breathing is to you. Yeah, it's just right. natural. Like you, yeah. I do find it to be like really funny how, I mean, how many, how many um, like clips are out there on YouTube that are probably like Elon Musk work ethic, and then like oh, yeah. you know people watch it like oh yeah I I do two hours one hour thirty minutes of focused effort yeah, like a day and like to... I'm gonna I would I mean it really is to circle back yeah, it's you, like you it's like the David Goggins of yeah, you can probably work. Google like Elon Musk routine, and there's some guy who like tried replicating it, and like gives yeah. you the formula for it. I did this for thirty it's, days. It's Watch to same, find out what. Saying happened. Elon Musk work routine is the same thing as saying Michael Jordan basketball ability. Yeah, like, you just don't have it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Most just, people don't. Just build it. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. And yeah, I think, I think that's pretty, like, as cringe as it is. Probably circa two thousand eighteen. Drew and James, like, oh, yeah. like probably sending those back and forth. Like, this is what Steve Jobs does in the morning. Like, yeah. I'm going to give it a try. Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it says something too for, I, I've been like battling back and forth with this of like, build up your weaknesses or double down on your strengths. And yeah. I, I think I've repeatedly seen the threads and I started thinking about it. It's like, just do the things that you're, you're good at. And right. go and, and because I think that's what all these guys who are, you know, ultra successful like dude it's like Elon Musk because he can work obsess over something and like learn everything about it and work for 120 hours a week that's what he does like he he's not what is Elon Musk not doing he's not uh, I don't know he's not trying to become the next great chef yeah because that's probably just not he does not gravitate towards it but you know, he does the things that he's good at. Same thing with, you know, Nepal. I think Naval talks a lot about that, actually, about just, like, do the things that you're you're good at. And yeah. hone, hone in on, it's kind of cheesy to say, but, like, you're the best at being you. Yeah. But it's true, because you actually think about, like, what is what is you? And what makes that up? Yeah. Elon Musk, it's ultra ability to work. Yeah. And I, I wonder how much guys at that level are, Watching videos or consuming content on what other I bet they billionaires are doing, you know. So like, I don't know. I think that it's right goal potentially for people, but it's just wrong approach, you know. Like you're saying, like become the best version of you. What do you do that by, or how do you do that? You probably do that by getting to know yourself and knowing your weaknesses versus your strengths versus just taking this like very generalized approach this specific thing that someone does and trying to like generalize it to your yourself, right? And just following it blindly. Like, oh, I'm gonna do 15 minutes of journaling 
because this is what whatever Tim mm. Cook does in the winter. Well, I mean, he has a far different life than you. Yeah. You might just enjoy it. You don't like writing, so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I think all these guys have a really low information diet with yeah. that kind of stuff. Like Tim Ferriss talks about having a low information diet. And like, yeah, there's a balance to it. Again, like there's something to be said for studying great people and what they do. And you can do that. And there's probably things that they do where you say, oh yeah, I would really benefit from that. Or like, I already do something similar to that. And understanding that. And then there's the other side of it, which is just wholesale adopting other people's routines and what they do without actually questioning if it's going to benefit you or not. That I think people do quite a lot. And people get a lot of attention for making myself available. I mean, how many YouTube videos are there of like, so-and-so's morning routine, so-and-so's work routine, I studied, I redid this, like, they're very popular videos, because it's like, <coughs> it like implicitly promise, uh, promises something, like it promises like, success in a way, without saying it, because you're like, oh, it, it, we're very drawn to like formulaic things, you're like, if I could just do that, I could have the same outcomes as this person. Right. Almost always the answer is no, you can't, and if the answer is yes, it means you have to follow that to a T for an unreasonably, to most people, unreasonably long amount of time to Definitely. see the impact. Yeah, and I think... So most people just don't see it. Yeah, something that you might have told me about was you were reading a book about, like, society and um, people trying to feed you a bunch of, like, shoulds. Was that you that... Talk to me about that originally. You talked to me about that. I was talking to you about that today, but I think you might have originally. Um, oh, I might have. I think I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, told me about that. But yeah, I mean, so many different sources are trying to feed you things that you should be doing. And I think mm -hmm. that in this day and age, um, you know, you can get a lot of freedom by just wading through that. And, you know, I'm not even going to give like a, a specific mental model to discern better about what to focus on because that's something that you should figure out for yourself but I think um, and they talk about this a lot in that book essentialism it's like just trying to boil everything down on what you should actually focus on so that you're taking your limited about amount of effort and running in one direction instead of just like circling around doing a million different things because you feel like you should that isn't getting you any closer to that might have any, come from essentialism then it, it may have I mean I think tyranny of the should yeah, yeah. Is that what it was? It's not the name of the book, but that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah. I think Tim Ferriss might talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, to me, it's like death by a thousand shoulds. Yeah. You know? It's just like, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. It's like these small little things. It's like, oh, it doesn't hurt that bad. But over time, when there's enough of them, it's like, it can really derail you. Um, so I think there's a lot of this self-help stuff, and I don't want to delve into this too much because we talk about it a lot in other podcasts, but... It feels like a bunch of shoulds, and all all of it is additive. Like there aren't many books besides like essentialism and maybe some philosophy books that are talking about being subtractive. Yeah. Right. Which I think that, I mean, for me the real growth has happened when I started subtracting. When I said, eh, I'm going to be a little bit more discerning in what I actually use as an input, you know, or the habits that I do things like that. You know, yeah. Just trying to get rid of them. Yeah, no, I agree. And I was thinking too, like, think about anytime anything's worked for you, how exciting that is. Mm -hmm. I you want to tell people. Yeah. That's like what a lot of these books are too. It's like, sure. Yeah. I went through something, I, I figured it out, I learned something, 
really worked for me. Here's this amazing book about it. Yeah. And a lot of times the books are good and they're helpful, they're useful, but I think at the end of the day you kind of have to look at like who's who's behind this, who's writing it. It's it's there's certain things that are generalizable, but not everything. And how a lot of that stuff. And it, it, I think it should give you like motivation, like all right, I'm gonna chart my own path and kind of figure this out. All you have to do is kind of go backwards and just think like we didn't live in a time where like everybody had a podcast and a self help book of right. sorts. Like it's a very very new phenomenon where like you're promised some solution on every page in Amazon like with, with some new book or like some new podcast guest like there was a time when people were just figuring it out and it was not very long ago at all maybe 30 40 years ago yeah I think something as well is you and I have both been in that excited tell you everything about it type of mm-hmm. mode how nuanced are we when we're in, yeah, it's, it's, I think that's what a lot of self-help books are. It's just like, Hey, this is the process that ended up working for me to get this specific outcome. And I'm just going to really just give you a no nuance argument for why you should blindly adopt it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so yeah, I think just cutting through that and finding what works for you definitely makes sense. Yeah. 100%. Also, uh, one of the arguments too for reading more of the classic books, yeah. old like philosophy and things like that, because it's timeless. It's timeless, yeah. It's not really prescribing much. It's just well, it's hard to explain. Like Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius. Um, the easy intro to this is like anything Ryan Holiday has ever written. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna read Daily Snowflake stuff. Um, which I really like his books too, because those aren't like Ryan Holiday's books aren't saying you know this is how I overcame this and this is what worked for me and this is my system. He's just repackaging really the oldest. It's kind of a you don't want to call it self help, but one of the oldest systems for dealing with life into yeah. something that's just more palatable and more readable. So that's a good place to go. Yeah, and I think a lot of times part of this no nuance approach that people have is you can solve problems a bunch of different ways and a lot of times that's an issue especially with psychology nutrition and exercise you can get to the same place but have very terrible paths to get there that are super circuitous Mm -hmm. so you know i think a lot of the self-help books become that you know they're just writing up these ways to get to outcomes that end up working for them personally but it's not generalizable yeah, yeah, definitely agree. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like you want to go towards the timeless things that are usually the most simplified, right? You don't want the super, super elaborate answer until you understand the simple ones. Yeah, I mean, people haven't, we haven't changed much at all in, yeah. like, 250,000 years <laughs> more. It's right. more, it's definitely more. Deal with the same shit, we have the same brains, same bodies, deal with the same problems. Yeah, like, we haven't changed life changed the, the, the exterior. Same. Yeah. The outside has changed. Yeah. And it's also like, uh, I was thinking about the whole time we were talking about, who's the golfer? I think it's John Daly. He's like great at golf and he just eats skins and coke all day. That's that's funny. Like, oh yeah, let's just, let's do that. It works for him. Yeah, Yeah. versus like Tiger Woods or any, probably any other modern golfer who has an insane routine. Yeah. Takes care of their health. Like, 
And obviously, like Tiger Woods has other blind spots that you would want to yeah. be blindly copying as well. That's true. Yeah. A lot of bumpers. Um, a lot of bastards. Yeah. Cool. All right. Good place to wrap. Yeah. But, okay. How, many, how long did we do? Hour 23. Is that our longest? Yeah, it's our longest podcast. Um, so, I'm going to do three hours. That's crazy. Yeah, insane. A lot of coffee. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. We'll wrap this up. Tip us out. Launch angle. Podcast number six. In the books. Thank you, guys.